Hi, everybody. This is your host, Ben Klenner, and welcome to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Probiotic Life. And uh, thanks all you guys for leaving reviews and for checking this podcast out. I am happy to say that we have made it onto the new and noteworthy on iTunes. So thank you very much for your support and I would uh, love continued support. That's great. So today on our podcast... We have uh, someone who I met at Perth City Farm. He is a forest pathologist. He has a PhD in forest pathology. And um, so we have an interesting chat about tree health and mycorrhizal fungi. This is Dr. Paul Barber. And um, yeah, just a great, uh, I thought it was quite an interesting chat. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about health in upcoming podcasts. I've got some great ones coming up for you. Uh, but this one is more about ecological health. So we'll uh, get started on this one. But uh, thank you again for your uh, support. If you like this podcast, would you click that subscribe button and leave us a review? That would be fantastic. Um, and without further ado... Here is the interview with Dr. Paul Barber. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in again to The Probiotic Life. Today, um, my guest is Dr. Paul Barber. Thank you and welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks very much for having me. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you because um, you know a lot of stuff about um, fungi and trees and would you like to just share a little bit about uh, your background and and where you're up to now sure sure so um, look growing up as a young child I had a, a real interest in nature uh, through going out in the bush with my my dad and my family uh, spending time in the country uh, so I always knew that I wanted to work in something related to nature and the environment uh, that shifted probably from marine in my degree through to forestry and fungi. And as, as you do when you're doing your environmental or university studies, uh, you usually get switched on by someone and it's a lecturer or someone that really, uh, you know, drives some passion in you uh, mm-hmm. about something. And for me it was, was fungi. So I had a, um, a third-year lecturer, uh, Dr Philip Keane, based at La Trobe University, and he, he lectured in fungi. And I just thought these these things were fascinating, you know. So I 
I did an honours uh, study on the microfungi affecting the foliage of bluegum plantations in Latrobe. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and so through looking down the microscope at those fungi, I was just incredibly amazed at the diversity of shapes and sizes and the, the biology of these organisms, mm. and it really switched me on. So I then uh, wanted to do a PhD after that, which I did in sort of forest pathology and taxonomy of wow. these microfungi yep. and then uh, got offered a job actually in Perth where before I'd finished my PhD. I uh, came across to Perth in 2003 and started a, a project as a postdoc working on the decline of chewet trees in, in Western Australia. Wow. So really uh, fungi was your uh, pathway to learn more about trees. Absolutely. I mean, I'd done some studies in third year um, third year of my degree was botany. I'd majored in botany, so yeah. I had a, an interest in trees, of course. Uh, but it was those fungi down the microscope, those microfungi, and we're talking about, you know, these fungi that have spores less than, you know, sometimes 10, 15 microns in size. Wow, okay. Uh, looking at these down the microscope and seeing those incredible shapes and sizes of those spores and how you could have three or four different species infecting a spot on a leaf that might be one centimetre in diameter yeah. and each of those fungi having those fruiting bodies like tiny little mushrooms mm-hmm. which would produce thousands of spores and seeing, you know, those shapes and sizes and the way they behave. I mean, that just amazed me and I thought, wow, these these things are incredible. You know, I need to know more about yeah. them. Yeah, so and that so, really yeah. sparked your um, mm. passion for fungi. Yeah, fungi and then those infecting trees. And I yeah. thought, you know, I need to be doing something where I might get a job. That's always good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, at that stage in uh, the late 1990s, the blue gum industry, it was sort of really taking off. So the blue gum plantation mm-hmm. industry. And so there was an opportunity to do a PhD looking at these fungi causing disease on blue gums right, and native yeah. forests. And that was partly sponsored by Timber Corp, who were the blue gum plantation company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, I saw that there could be a job at the end of it. So I was I was heavily into studying that, hoping that I could do something I love, but also get a job at yeah. the end. Yeah. 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 And so then um, bring us a little bit forward to today. Now you have your own company. Yeah. That's Arbor Carbon. That's and, right. And, and what, what does Arbor Carbon do? Okay, so uh, I'd spent some time just, be, I mean, before talking about Arbor Carbon, I'd spent yeah. some time at Murdoch University uh, you know, in a role uh, as a research fellow and working on the decline of native trees, uh, you know, the, the things that were causing the decline of those trees. Yeah. And then plantation forests in Asia as well. Uh, and my interests in tree health broadened from just fungi to everything else, which was the nutrition uh, right, you know, of okay. trees, yep. it was the... Um, the fire ecology, the insects associated with the trees, the mycorrhizal fungi. And in about 2003, 2004, I started to become interested in remote sensing. So using satellite and airborne imagery to investigate the uh, changes in health of trees and forests yeah. and how to diagnose the decline of those, those, um, those trees and forests. So I started, and how do you do that from a satellite? What what sort of things do you look for? Is it like the, the colour of the green? Is it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, those sorts of things. So the greenness is indices. They call like the greenness index. Yeah. Uh, things like NDVI, which you hear more of now. Okay. Which is a special index, which is related to uh, the vigour of, of you know, vegetation. Yeah. And so you look at patterns in the landscape. You look at 
changes in patterns over time. Right. And so these yeah. are spatial and temporal data sets. Cool. And you yeah. use those to look at patterns and, and go out on the ground and investigate further. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, so I did that for, you know, about six years and I started to get inquiries about, you know, people with trees in the urban environment. You know, how do I, how do I de- diagnose the, the cause of the death of my trees and the decline of my trees? How do I fix that? And we'd been treating trees for a long time, you know, systemically implanting trees, mm-hmm. um, mitigating factors that were causing decline in tree health. And so I saw that, you know, hey, there was a, a niche here for a consultancy, a, a service yeah. to people to diagnose the cause of decline of their, their trees and help them to manage that and actually stop them from dying. Yeah. And so I set up yeah. the, the company in, in 2009 uh, in partnership actually with my former boss who was like a silent partner and I asked him if he'd like to be a partner in the business. Yeah. Uh, it was yeah. the beginning of Arbor Carbon, 2009. And so that was more um, geared towards trees in the urban environment or because I know you work with councils and all sorts of things. Was that yeah. that's where you saw the specialty was in trees in an urban environment and it grew from there? Yeah, so at that time, you know, 2009, uh, it's fair to say the plantation industry was was uh, going backwards. Mm. Forestry was dropping off the radar. So you have to go where the work is. And, and I saw an opportunity in the urban environment at that stage. So our very first client was the Wembley Golf Complex in, uh, in Cambridge. Right. And so those guys came to us and they said, you know, we've, we've got – these amazing tuit trees on our golf course, uh, they're dying. We spend a lot of money pruning them every year, the dead wood, and we lose these trees. Yeah. Is there another way? And, and so we said, right, well, yes, there is. We can diagnose the cause of decline. We can treat the trees and we can monitor them from the air using remote sensing. Oh, wow. And that was the, that was the first project. Yeah. So, and, and from there on, uh, we've worked with Wembley Golf Complex all that time. We mm-hmm. fly over every year and monitor their golf course. We've treated probably thousands of trees in that golf course and they've won environment awards with our help. So they're a really forward-thinking golf course. Oh, fantastic, yeah. yeah. So it's sort of like a, a flagship for your company and probably for Perth too, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Those guys are really lead the way. It's the busiest golf course in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, yeah. And it's an amazing place actually because if you go there and have a look and look at what they've done, uh, they've worked really hard, incredible vision, and they give back to every ratepayer in the town of Cambridge $140. Really? Yeah, it's the oh, only... That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. So, you know, places like swimming pools and other recreation facilities cost ratepayers a lot of money. Mm. Uh, they give back $140 to mm. every ratepayer. So it's an incredible... I mean, I could understand, I could imagine something like that in, you know, a Scandinavian country, but here in Australia, especially mm. in Perth, yeah. That's um, that's really cool. That's incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're very forward thinking. Yeah. yeah. So now you have um, Arbor Carbon. What would you say is something that um, maybe you learnt growing up, or maybe through your um, your um, education, that has um, maybe taught you lessons all the way through, or something that has really mm. come up again and again over that time from you know when you're growing up until now. Mm. Yeah, so I, I suppose I feel very passionate about trees and the environment. I'm, I, I feel like 
you know, I've got a certain suite of skills um, in what I do as a forest pathologist and a person who's got expertise around tree health. Mm. I feel like I want to use those skills to make a difference, you know. And when I was at the university, I learned a huge amount about, you know, many aspects, abiotic and biotic disorders of trees and so on. Um, but I often found myself questioning how many people read my papers. Mm. I was doing this cool research. We struggled to get funding. It was mm. always a battle to get funding to do the research. We'd write the papers and I'd wonder what really difference it was making, you know, mm. this in the world. Mm-hmm. For me, being a consultant and working in Arbor Carbon, in every project we do, I know we can make a difference yeah. because we're connecting to the day-to-day manager. And so I look at the the world and we all know that climate change is a huge factor. We know that land clearing is a huge factor. We know that millions of people are, are moving to the cities around the world each week mm. and that's having an impact on green space in the urban environment. Yeah. And so I, I feel like we have an opportunity to try and educate people on the benefits of that green space and what – and, and connect people with the green space. And in the urban environment, we have a unique opportunity to do that because we all live there, or most of us live there. Yeah. So when you talk about that tree and it reduces the, the heat of that space by five degrees and that has a positive impact on your health, mm. then, then that, that resonates with people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I feel like everything I've learned about tree health... Uh, I'm trying to bring that to what we do in day-to-day and really it's the connection to people. Yeah. It's when people listen. They listen when you talk about health and money. Unfortunately, if you talk about biodiversity and animals and things like this, it's so important, a lot of people switch off. Mm. If you talk about their back pocket and their health, yeah. they listen. So, so yeah, I, I've learnt over all the years that it's very important to – you know, green space and trees and forests are incredibly important for humanity and mm. health. And we need to get those messages across to scientists and turn the science into language that people understand. Yeah. And if we do that and empower the people, then hopefully they will help us to conserve what remains mm-hmm. and improve the health of that yeah. environment. So yeah. that's, that's sort of where I come from, mm. yeah. So you first studied your, your study was with blue gums, is that correct? Yeah, so I did a Bachelor of Science in Biological Sciences at La Trobe. So yeah. there's quite a unique uh, Bachelor of Science in a way. Uh, and then my first uh, honours, my honours project was the foliar pathogens of blue gum plantations. Right. And, yeah. and blue gum plantations in Australia are quite big because of the regrowth rate. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, so it's fair to say that it was a pretty big industry back in that time and a lot of the companies that were around were managed investment schemes. So it was an agribusiness style. So, you know, a lot of mum and dad investors investing into that to grow trees mainly for wood chips and paper pulp, you know, export to Japan and Korea. Okay. Uh, I mean, we all know that a lot of those companies collapsed. So Mm. the MIS scheme failed largely. So, yeah, a lot of those plantations now, they're being ongrown, you know, or um, they're being managed by small landholders uh, okay. and so on. So, yeah, yeah it's, the industry exists, but I think it's fair to say it's nothing like it was before. Yeah. But it's a fast-growing species 
uh, you know, rotation of around about 12 to 15 years on good sites. And okay. I think in that green triangle of southwest Victoria and then southeast South Australia, they were mostly good sites. Yeah. Yep. But in Western Australia, um, a lot of trees were grown on shallow soils and suboptimal soils. So, mm. so quite a lot of trees didn't perform like they yeah. people said they yeah. would. Yeah. So, in terms of like technically, you can, from what I understand, you can cut them down three or four times. Is that right? And they'll they'll grow. Yeah. Back. So you can cut them, and then they call coppice them. So okay. they re-sprout, and then you can um, leave those to grow and thin those out, and then yeah. reuse them again. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And do they? What do they do to the area? I mean, like, obviously, um, in South Australia, where you're saying there is good soil there, mm, mm. Uh, what what was the practices to put back into the soil? Or was yeah, any- oh, look, I think uh, there was land prep. You know, land prep's very important to ensure the, the seedlings get an early start and establish yeah. themselves well, you know, ripping and, and doing things to the land. Uh, yeah. Weed control was a very big one, so there'd be a lot of herbicide application to control the weeds in the early stages mm. uh, prior to getting uh, canopy closure. Uh, you know, a lot of people didn't like the fact that once the trees were cut down or there'd been trees grown on the land and it was very hard to do something with it afterwards. Mm. So you'd have stumps remaining and, right. and so on. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so quite a lot of prep work would go in. In terms of beneficial organisms and positive things to do to the soil, I don't know whether there was a lot of that work being done at the time. I wasn't involved in it. Mm. Uh, you know, there were certainly fertilisers, well-known fertiliser rates um, yeah, being applied uh, and probably trees being inoculated maybe in the nursery you know, or naturally inoculated with mycorrhizal fungi. Yeah. So there, there may have been some of that but I wasn't involved in that in those days. I didn't know a lot about mycorrhizal fungi back in that time, the late 1990s. So your uh, study of the, the fungi on the leaves, mm. that wasn't mycorrhizal fungi? No, no, it was more about the... The bad guys, the you know, the pathogens. No, the pathogens oh. affecting the trees okay, rather yeah. than the good guys, which are the mycorrhizal fungi that right. improve health yeah. of the trees. Yeah. yeah, I was listening to a uh, a talk by this uh, lady, Dr. Lynn Body, out of the UK. Mm. Um, she did a, you know, as uh, I think doing her PhD, did a study on the um, decay rates of trees and decay rates of um, fallen you know, branches Mm. um, and found that a lot of these um, fungi were actually in the branches before they had dropped. Yes. Which is, uh, you know, interesting because you think about it drops to the ground and then it starts to rot. Mm. But, you know, what her work was saying is, no, it's actually... In, in a living tree before mm. that happened. Did you find that with the in the leaves of your the ones that you were looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So we've described lots of different species now. I think we've described nearly 20 new species of fungi affecting trees uh, and quite a lot of those species we call uh, endophytes or latent pathogens. Mm-hmm. And so these are fungi which occur in the living healthy trees. So they're in there, they don't produce symptoms, you know, they're there happily. And then once the tree becomes stressed, uh, so for example, a tree uh, suffers hail damage or it suffers some water stress and it mm. starts to 
um, produce some necrosis, some death of the tissue, then these fungi can express themselves and start to cause decline of the, the twigs and the branches right. and die back in the crown. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then you know, the tree might die over time mm-hmm. and then fall to the ground and then they break down quite quickly. So they, they're very common uh, and we find them around Perth. You know, we've described numerous species, new species, you know, associated with peppermints and chewets and, and banksias, you know, yeah, the, you yeah. can go into the environment, see this lesion, uh, but then there's an underlying stress that's initiated that, like a trigger. Right. So they play a role. I mean, yeah. they play a unique role in that they, they also help speed up the cycle. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and what's really interesting about some of those endophytes uh, is that they can actually improve the resistance or help trees to repel insects and other fungi as well, which is really fascinating. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, like so in, it's not necessarily yeah. a, bad, um, a bad thing. So no. It's not like it's um, specifically a pathogen. No, that's right. So we call them yeah, latent pathogens yeah. or endophytes and then there are others that are endophytes that don't really ever become pathogenic but they play a role. Right. So, you know, there's this whole area that we don't really fully understand but we're learning more. So mm. I have a student, for example, in uh, Vietnam. So I was just in Vietnam last week. I have a PhD student who's working on a really serious disease in acacia plantations. It's mm. called Ceratocystis wilt. And she's been isolating these endophytes from the trees, so these bacteria and fungi that come out of the tree themselves. Now, she's using them in vitro against the cultures to see whether they have an inhibitory effect and then Mm. she's putting them back into the trees to see what effect they have on the pathogen. And so we're getting some really positive signs that these things are helping the tree to repel. Yeah. Because a lot of these fungi contain you know, other chemicals or they switch on pathways mm. in the plant, which, yep. you know, play the role of, you know, a bit like what you would do if you applied a fungicide or a growth regulator or something like that. Yeah. Then these are naturally occurring within these, these bacteria. Mm-hmm. So it's a yeah. really fascinating it, area. That's the fascinating thing about fungus, isn't it? It's like there's so many, well, so many that we don't, we, we haven't defined yet. Oh, because, absolutely. Um, but the fact is you can, uh, I was hearing someone talk about, you know, you put two different kinds of mycorrhizal fungi together and they will um, create certain, I guess, enzymes and mm. different things. Mm. But you put three mm. of them together mm. and they'll create all sorts of different ones. Mm. So you don't know specifically if you, say, put a product, a mycorrhizal product mm. with 15 kinds of, mm. what is it actually going to do? You Absolutely. Might, you might know with one. Mm. That, that That's what I am really interested in is like there's so much to learn. There's so much to mm. um, understand. And so that's one of the reasons I, I enjoy talking to you, Paul, whenever I have seen you at Perth City Farm is like you're always mm. – I you know a lot of stuff, <laughs> you know, so I want to, you know, ask you. Uh, different things, different things about that fungi. Mm. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the, the urban um, mm. space and because it sounds like you, you've got quite a bit of experience there mm. as well. Um, here in Perth, what do, you, what do you see in the urban situation? Like what are some of the common um, things that you see uh, that, that trees are doing or mm. like some of the damages that people are doing to mm. the trees? Mm. Yeah, look, uh, there's, there, are, there are several things really 
so one of the one of the uh, detrimental things you know with trees in the urban environment is the way they're pruned and managed. Mm. So you see trees beneath the power lines that are just topped, you know, time yeah. after time after time, uh, and that's obviously reducing canopy cover, you know, biomass. Uh, mm. You know, that affects the health of the tree as well. It opens up wounds to infection. Right. So you know, power lines and infrastructure are a big issue for trees. Mm. Uh, the way people prune those trees, if they don't prune them correctly you know that leaves a, a bad uh limb with an open wound on there and allows decay fungi to come in for example yeah, yeah. and then what happens over time is if you get that decay in there and the tree grows that can become a hazard and then a risk to life and property so right so yeah. often people don't see that until years later you mm. know that this is actually the result of poor pruning practices mm. that have occurred years ago and and I suppose in WA there are there are good contractors and there are bad ones mm. and there are a lot of bad ones around and there mm. are certain some really good ones too. Uh, so yeah, it's a big issue. I mean, one of the other really big issues in in Perth is the quality of the tree that is planted in the urban landscape. Okay. Yep. So you know, a lot of councils will talk about we want to increase our canopy cover by a certain amount or we want to plant a million trees by 2020 or something like that. Mm. So they'll go out there and spend a huge amount of money on buying trees and often they're advanced trees. So they might yeah. be trees that are you know one or two metres high and they're expensive. Mm. Uh, and they have to plant those advanced trees in streetscapes because if they plant seedlings and small shrubs and vandals will come along and often pull them out or snap them, you know. Yeah. So they buy these advanced trees and... Often we see that those trees coming from the nursery, they've been grown in this beautiful environment with lots mm-hmm. of fertiliser and water and yep. beautiful potting mix. They, um, they haven't been grown well in the nursery right from when they were tube stop. Mm. So the root system is already compromised. The tree is in a, a, a system where it's being supported through its whole life. Yeah. So yep. it never develops that strong caliper and strong root system to hold mm. it upright. And so then you go and plant that in the urban landscape into soils which are depauperate, you know, they're lacking in mm. nutrients and, you know, beneficial organisms. You plant them in a small space. You, you reduce the amount of water. Uh, they don't have the fertiliser they were getting before. The root system isn't strong, so they're not self-supporting. Mm. And then you expect that tree to thrive, you know, and, and it just often it doesn't. So yeah. they estimate maybe... 30% of trees planted go on to become mature, established, healthy trees. Really? 30%? Yeah. Oh. yeah probably at best. Yeah. You know. And so now I start to think about the resources that go into maintaining that tree for the first couple of years, managing it, you know, if it dies, taking it out, you know, yeah. replanting another one. That's ratepayers' money going into that. And then think about the costs and benefits. So the cost going into maintaining establishing an urban forest and then the benefits that that gives back mm-hmm. i believe are far there's no balance there at the moment mm-hmm. you know the the costs far outweigh the benefits we're getting yeah so yeah. you know we're not increasing our canopy cover and in fact even worse we're losing canopy cover because we're <clears throat> removing established trees which you know a tree a large tree in an urban landscape might have a canopy cover of or a crown cover of 300 square meters <clears throat> put a small tree in there you know with a crown area of one or two square meters then that's going to, not going to become a tree that size for decades yeah yeah, yeah. 
I totally relate to uh, what you're saying in the suburb I used to live in. Um, the amount of times I, I saw the councils go into the same um, place and replace the trees, especially in mm. the middle of the roads and those little islands there. I mean, there's it's asphalt all, all around it mm. and you've got these baking hot conditions in the Perth mm. summer mm. and... Other than that, there's, you know, people like driving over the trees and smashing into them. Yeah. I would say like in the in the year and a half that I lived in um, in that place, I saw the trees replaced maybe three or four times. Yes. You yeah. know, mm. because just because of damage or they just died so quickly. Like within a – I saw them plant them in the middle of summer and I was like, that's not a good idea. No, 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 terrible, um, terrible. So so what, it, what could we do yeah, for people who do have, you know – uh, a place in the city. Mm. How can we increase that? How how or how can we help the trees that are in a, in our on our property or you know around us? What what's something that we could actually do? Yeah, look, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on uh, urban lots at the moment, for, uh, you know, through subdivision. So mm. there's been laws change and planning laws. So a lot of people are subdividing blocks. Uh, they are developing lots, you know, that's that's happening. So or they're renovating or expanding, you mm. know, it's, it's very common in Perth. So one of the, the most important things is to protect the trees that uh, remain. Mm. If you want that tree to remain there for decades to come, then you really need to protect the tree during development and that's right. critical. So we yeah. often see that, you know, there's good intention at the start Mm-hmm. Uh, trees, they look at trees and they might say, right, we want to keep those three or four trees because we like them. We'll design around them. Mm. Uh, we'll try and retain them. But what happens is they don't protect the root zone of the tree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They damage the tree in the process. And then, you know, a year later after development, the tree's dead or dying. Yeah. And they end up with this this skeleton in their, their lot, mm-hmm. you know. So that's absolutely critical. And, and there are... Um, there are standards, Australian standards for they call tree protection on development sites, mm-hmm. and you'd be surprised that most developers in Perth you know, don't even know they exist. And when you say to the developers, you know there are standards for this, they have no idea. Mm. Um, so that's I think that's a real real key message for people: uh, protect the root zone of the trees. Mm. You know, and the root zone of trees is usually quite large. Yeah. So yeah. we could. Uh, one thing could be to actually, if we're developing a site, ask the developer to, to look into what, what are the standards. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. the other thing would be to protect the root zones. Uh, like as a landscaper, I see that all the time, especially in yeah. front yards where a bobcat has come in and boxed out our front yard, taken all the lawn out mm. and, you know, ripped, you know, at least 30 or 40% of the, the top roots off mm. of the tree or, you know, a skip bin has been dropped right next to the tree and, you know, scraped one side of the tree or whatever. Mm. Um, so to actually put some fencing around there or something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I've seen some incredible things over the years where contractors have knocked bark off the tree and then stuck it back onto the tree with PVC glue. <laughs> Just crazy, crazy <laughs> stuff. But, you know, like, and they think it's going to be fine. Yeah. Like, because they don't understand trees. Right, you know? yeah. Yeah. So... They're key messages uh, and and I think also, you know, pointing them in the direction of those standards but also 
pointing them in the direction of, say, a qualified arborist, mm. someone who can give some good advice, yeah. who knows trees and understands them and says, okay, this is what you should do. Yeah, uh, yeah. Rather than yeah. trying just trying to hack, hack a tree down ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely understand that as a landscaper, you know. Uh, you don't need a degree to become a, a landscape gardener mm. as such and there's a lot of dodgy things that, that people do out there. Um, mm. uh, so hopefully I haven't done too much damage to trees. <laughs> um, but so you've, you've travelled a bit as well though. You've, you've seen different parts of the world in regards to trees and tree health. Mm. But can you share some of the interesting places mm. that you've been that you've seen some cool stuff with trees? Yeah, sure, sure. So, I mean, I've been very lucky uh, in my work in being able to travel around the world um looking at trees and uh it's you know i i feel i feel very fortunate i work in a job where i get to travel and see incredible landscapes meeting amazing people but do something that has a real benefit you know mm. in my job in the world you know so i'm very fortunate in that way uh so my first travels really with trees um dated back to about 2003 to south africa you know going through plantations over there and learning about them with some connections we had at the university uh then after that to indonesia uh, going into sumatra up into the highlands there and looking at acacia mainly eucalypt plantations actually over there Mm. Uh, and from there on i've been very lucky to travel to many parts, so lots through Asia, Laos, Thailand, you know, Vietnam a lot. Maybe I've been to Vietnam 15 times, you know, to, wow, to look okay. at trees, yeah. and urban and plantation trees, and I was just there last week. Uh, Travelling a lot through, you know, some through the Middle East as well. So the last 12 months I've been to Iran twice, um, working yeah. for the they're called the Food and Agricultural Organisation of the UN, so as a consultant to the UN working on um, forest health uh, and building capacity in the government to help them manage diseases that come into the forest. Right, yeah. That was specifically to do with a serious disease that's come in called boxwood blight. It's a fungus that's come in Mm. and virtually wiped out more than two-thirds of the existing boxwood tree forests in the northern part of Iran, uh, which is an incredible forest. It's a right up near the Caspian Sea. Uh, It's almost subtropical. It's so dense and lush, you know, completely different to what most people think Iran would be like. Yeah, yeah. Because they have the Zagros forest, which is, you know, all the oaks and Mm -hmm. incredible oaks throughout the, you know, those more arid regions. Mm. So I was fortunate to travel around Iran and see those areas Uh, and found Iran's, uh, you know, obviously it's opened up more recently Mm. and, you know, it's an incredible place to go to. It's completely different to what people think. Yeah. People are so friendly. The landscape is amazing. You know, it's it's a really wonderful place. Is it mostly Mediterranean climate or what's the sort of climate? It it varies varies a lot, yeah. Mm. So the rainfall up around the Caspian Sea, I think it's getting up over two metres a year. Wow. It's pretty high from memory. Uh, you know, getting out into those arid areas, it's very, very low, you know, mm. maybe two, three, four hundred mil, you know, around there. So the some of the Persian oak and, and the, those species are really well adapted to arid environments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, really quite a, a unique, diverse landscape, uh, especially when you fly over it. You know, the, the snow-capped mountains right through to the Caspian Sea. Right, it's incredible. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, lots through Australia. We do a lot of work up north of Australia in the Sandalwood 
plantations and, and eucalypts in north of Queensland. Mm. Um, do a lot of work in Hong Kong. So we've just set up a, a company in Hong Kong. Uh, I'm on an urban forestry advisory panel there set up by the government to give advice about um, urban forest management. Yeah. So I go to Hong Kong a few times a year um, to, to work there. Uh, UK, we're doing some stuff there. I've been to – done some work in Florida um, oh, through cool. the Everglades, which was yeah. pretty cool, remote yeah. sensing work. And you said you've been to – um, Singapore quite a few times as well, is that yeah, right? Yeah, so Singapore, we started our first project in Singapore about uh, six months ago, uh, working right. over there, and it was a pre-development sort of biodiversity survey. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, that was pretty amazing because Singapore, as you know, is an incredible place. It's so green uh, and has these lush sort of forests inside the urban area mm. as well. So we were working in an area that was maybe, you know, 30 years old but had these huge you know, African mahoganies and other species through mm. there, a bit like a jungle when you walk through. Yeah. Had, you know, spitting cobras and pig wow. and, yeah. you know, but all around the outside of it is, you know, 40-storey apartments and mm-hmm. it's an incredible mm. place. So, yeah, I, I think Singapore's amazing, you know, what they've done. They've created that sort of, you know, city inside a garden almost. It's mm. it's incredible. You and, know. and how do you do that? Like specifically like... You know, I've been to Singapore a few times and you see all this lush greenery. I mean, I understand they get a lot of rainfall, mm. um, but it seems that the the urban um, development would really um, hinder some of that some of that growth. What do they do to, to, to keep it healthy or to mm. keep it, um, you know, mm. uh, growing forward rather than, you know, um, Going backwards. Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, you know, like Singapore has a great climate for growing trees, particularly subtropical species. Mm. So you see the rainfall and you see the soils are so fertile. You know, it's a you know, it rains a lot there, high humidity. Plants just seem to grow mm. really, really well. Uh, and so they're, they're very fortunate in many ways. You know, you have your vertical greening systems and, mm. and rooftop gardens. Yeah, yeah. And those, that vegetation grows so well for that reason. It has so much water and, and a good environment to grow plants in. Uh, you know, you come to a place like Perth, you know, it's so dry mm. and, and lacks rainfall. The sun is so harsh, you know. So people try and transfer that type of system to Perth and, and invariably it fails. Yeah. Uh, even transplanting trees, you know, in places like Singapore, Hong Kong, Thailand, Vietnam, you know, you see some of the trees that are transplanted, they're like sticks. You know, they've, they've got mm. the trunk, a couple of branches, tiny little root system, you know, in a ball. They take it to a site, they plant it, it grows. You know, mm. invariably mm-hmm. it grows and yep. it establishes itself because of the environment, you know. Mm. Uh, whereas if you try and do that in Perth, the, the tree just definitely doesn't grow, you know. Yeah. So yeah. They're, they're fairly fortunate in that regard, yeah. And so somewhere like <laughs> Perth um, where it is very dry, mm. um, what's the best way to plant a tree here? So you've got it. first thing is you've got to match the species to the site. Right. So you've okay. got to choose the species that's going to grow well in that environment, in that mm. soil type. That's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to choose a tree that's got a healthy root system you know it's been grown the right way in the nursery unless you're planting your seed of course Mm. 
Uh, and then you've got to plant it correctly, which is really important. So mm. allowing enough uh, soil volume for the tree to become a tree, the seedling to become a tree, preparing that soil well. So the yeah. organic matter, uh, you know, ensuring that you've got some nutrition in there to get established mm. and water penetrates. And as you know, the soil becomes hydrophobic in summer, so, mm-hmm. you know, wetting agents. Um, and then... You know, planting timing is everything as well. Mm. So if you plant, like you said earlier, in the middle of summer, then you're increasing your chances of failure due to drought, you know, water stress. So planting at the end of, say, autumn, uh, around the time when the soil is still warm, but you can start to get some uh, moisture coming in, then the root system will really get going. Mm -hmm. You know, if you leave it too late, winter, late winter, then the soils cool down. You know, those microbes in the soil, they become less active. Yeah. Uh, the root system won't grow as well. It won't become as established before summer. So you give it less chance to survive mm. that first summer. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed too that planting stuff in the winter is uh, susceptible to rot as well if it's not Absolutely. Um, done well. Yeah. So, um, and so how do you check for healthy um, roots? You're talking about, you know, making sure roots roots are healthy on, on a tree. How, what does that look like? Yeah, so, you know, healthy roots are, uh, you know, if we're talking about trees, say eucalypts, for example, we want uh, roots that are not just going straight down. Mm. Uh, and if they've been grown in a tube stock too long, those roots will just go down, they lignify. Mm. And it doesn't matter if you transplant them onto larger pots. Mm-hmm. Those roots stay going downwards and spiral downwards and, right. and you don't get a lot of roots going out lateral. So you yeah. want a good strong lateral root system. Mm. Uh, you you know three or four or five laterals that go out. They can anchor the tree. You know when you've planted it, you want um, you know nice sort of healthy looking roots, which means you know there there's lots of root division. They're mm. white in colour. Yeah. They're not they're not black and you know necrotic and dying diseased yeah. roots. And we yep. see that a lot, particularly in. Roots that have been in a nursery and potting mix, you know, too long, over over watered, and then there's things like phytophthora, you mm. know, pathogens in there. Yeah, we can dig those up and look at those root systems, and you see them dying. They're breaking off really easily. They're yeah. black. Yeah, it's just not a healthy root system, mm-hmm. you know, mm. and and so therefore that seedling and tree has um, reduced chance of survival and thriving. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely noticed that planting lots of plants and trees when you see they start to go brown and a bit like sludgy or yeah. whatever rather than that really nice white mm. uh, new growth. Yeah. Um, and so when, when you are planting, would you recommend um, any sort of uh, mycorrhizal inoculant or mm. anything someone planting in a residential area could do? Yeah. Yeah, look, um, there are a few products out there on the market, you know, the, the and you have to be careful because like we spoke about earlier, if you put 15 different varieties in there, then mm. what are they doing? So, you know, particular trees usually have a particular suite of mycorrhizal fungi that mm. they, they connect to. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I often don't encourage people to go out there and buying, spending their money on mycorrhizal inoculants and things mm. like that because... You know, often seedlings or trees coming from nurseries, I've seen mycorrhizal fungi in the pots, you know, just naturally inoculating the trees from, you know, from the surrounding environment and so on. Mm. So if you plant those trees in the environment, you use a good quality compost, Mm. uh, composted soil conditioner, uh, you improve the soil, 
uh, you, you know, protect the root system, uh, you use a, you know, some sort of, uh, say, seaweed you know, tonic or fertiliser to mm-hmm. help it become established, maybe a slow-release fertiliser at planting. Yeah, yep. you know, all those things are going to help rather than spending mm-hmm. your money on you know, the muck and mystery. Yeah, <laughs> yep, for sure. You know? Could be snake oil. Yeah, absolutely, mm. yeah. So before we finish up, let's just step up, step back a bit. I would love to hear a bit more about why it is important for us to have trees in the urban environment and maybe a few facts on like how they affect. You're talking um, at the beginning about biodiversity. Mm. So can you share a bit about what, what are the benefits of tr- you know, trees and then different biodiversity and how it connects to us, how it connects to our health. Sure, sure. Okay, so if we talk about biodiversity, um, the obvious one in Perth are the carnabies and the black cockatoos. Mm. So, you know, the we know that the their natural habitat's been smashed out in the wheat belt in those areas. We know the numbers are dwindling. Mm. Uh, it's It's catastrophic. We know they move into the urban area to get their food because they don't have as much in the in the natural environment. Mm. We know that trees like pine trees, for example, on golf courses and places like that, that they're incredibly important to the carnivores and black cockatoos. So you go to, say, a golf course like Royal Fremantle or um, Wembley, you see the cockatoos coming in flocks to, to feed on those, those trees. Um, so, you know, there's obvious biodiversity. There's the micro bats in the urban environment that most people don't see, which we, you hear occasionally at night time. Mm. Uh, all sorts of other birds and insects. Uh, and then there's all the biodiversity below ground. So mm. there's the mycorrhizal fungi and the bacteria. Mm. Uh, so, I, I mean, there's obvious biodiversity uh, connected to urban trees and I think those corridors are really important as well. So right, yeah. encouraging those corridors from, say, for example, from a Wembley golf course through to a bold park and then beyond, mm. those corridors are very important and you see birds follow those corridors. So, so I feel like the urban environment is incredibly important for biodiversity uh, but most people in the urban environment don't appreciate it or don't connect to it. Mm. So that's why we often don't talk about biodiversity, not that we don't care because we mm. do, but we talk about people's health and right. money, okay? So yeah. so when I'm talking about the urban forest and the benefits, I'm usually talking about, particularly in Perth, the reduction in heat and shade. Mm. And as we know, summer in Perth is incredibly dry and hot and people feel that every year and so that affects your health and well-being it affects your comfort particularly the older people and the younger people mm. uh, it affects your hip pocket because you've got to run your aircon more often mm. mm-hmm. you know, all those things that's affecting you directly and so we, we we've done some work over the years looking at the urban heat island effect in Perth and we've looked at the satellite images that show urban heat across mm. Perth and we you know we've had articles in the newspapers and on TV about this. And when we looked at these areas, what was really apparent, and it's you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work it out, but, you know, obviously the connection with trees is important. So an area like uh, a Wembley uh, a Wembley Downs or somewhere that has a high canopy cover might be four or five degrees cooler by mid-morning in summer than a new suburb like a Piara Waters or somewhere out in Butler. Okay, where there's no trees or few trees, there's wall-to-wall black roofs 
and you've got a temperature which is similar to, say, Perth Airport where it's barren. Mm. So then think about what's that place like to live in? You know, when you go out in the morning, do you want to go outside with your young kids in that blazing heat? Do you want to walk to the park? You know, most people won't want to because it's, you know, blazing heat. Mm. So they stay yeah. inside. Yeah. So what effect does that have on your health? It reduces your physical activity exposes you to aircon all the time, you're staying indoors, you know, it's not good for your health, mm. okay? So we want to encourage people to get outside. We want to encourage them to connect with nature and green space. Mm. So the other area that we saw was incredibly hot was the retirement village next to Murdoch University, St Ives. Okay. So when we looked at the hot spots, that just stood out as a hot spot. Now, this is an area where there's no trees or few trees, black roofs or hardscape. Okay, and this is where our elderly people go to retire and live. Mm. Now think about what effect that has on their health when they're yeah. inside all the time they don't want to go outside. Okay, so I, I'm talking about human health and we've just had a study with UWA uh, which is quite exciting because we look at our airborne remote sensing and canopy cover. So we're able to quantify every piece of canopy cover in the city or urban areas. We've connected with them. Their focus is the um, children in childcare centres and yeah. they attach UV tags to these children and they attach accelerometers to them. And so they can monitor their exposure to UV and their physical activity every day. Mm-hmm. And then we look at all the different childcare centres and we extract the canopy cover of each of them and then we look at the relationship between them. And so that's exciting to me because it's it's a link between trees and canopy cover and children health. Yeah, yeah. And so people listen when you talk about that. And that's something that you can say, hey, these, these are the actual results. Absolutely. This is something, yeah. it's scientific evidence. You know, and, and that's that's what gets me excited is we, we adopt a scientific approach, we gather real data. Mm. You know, you can't make decisions without data. We provide that data to the day-to-day manager, the person who's planning to build their childcare centre or the person who's planning to develop a new urban area and we say to them, look at that. If you plan your area like this with wall-to-wall houses, black roofs and no trees, this is what you're going to create. Is Mm -hmm. that what you want to do? And so then it changes the way they develop and we therefore have a positive effect on people. So that's... That's, I think, urban heat in, in Perth is incredibly important. Uh, and so yeah. what, what would you say to someone, because I hear this all the time as a landscaper, I just want to uh, cut down the tree, take out the garden beds mm. and put um, fake grass out there because mm. it will save my water bill. What, what do you say to someone like Yeah, that? sure. So, and, that, and that's, it's true, isn't it, that uh, it will result in reductions in water. I suppose it may result in reductions in uh, applications of pesticides and things like that. Mm. But then you have to think about the life cycle. So, you know, what's gone into creating that synthetic turf? You know, it's probably been made in a factory maybe in China. Mm. Uh, there's been probably oils and uh, pollutants used to make that products then it has to be transported all the way to purse that has a carbon footprint okay then it's got to be laid uh and then you've got the urban heat that bounces off that Mm. so that can be incredibly hot so that has that negative impact on people and who wants to walk on synthetic turf in the Mm. middle of a summer's day yeah in fact i've heard people you know getting blisters from walking on that stuff it's so hot absolutely 
Mm. And I think also the connection, we can't underestimate the connection with nature and trees and green, even if it's just lawn, Mm. how that has a positive benefit on your well-being as a Mm. person. And there's more and more studies into that now. Uh, And so we've got to get back to that. You know, Mm -hmm. this whole thing... You know, I, I sit on the fence when we start talking about, uh, you know, drones being used to plant trees and sp- spread seed in the landscape and things like that. You know, we're moving more and more away from that connection with nature, mm. you know, and mm-hmm. I, I think we've got to be very careful in replacing that connection with, with technology as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, that's what I hope this podcast will um, inspire people to do is is get connected like you're saying you know these studies coming out about how um, soil microbes are actually um, can affect our bodies uh, like like an antidepressant mm, absolutely um, and all these sort of things just rolling around in the grass with your mm, kids or mm. you know sitting under a tree reading a book rather than being on your screen for you know, hours at a time yeah yeah that's um, right so yeah I, I really connect with you on that and I'm, I'm really um Thankful that you're able to, you, you've been able to um, come and share a bit with us on this mm. podcast. Yeah, no worries, Ben. Is there yeah. was there anything that you want to you leave us with? Uh, any um, insights or um, anything that we can do? I mean, I guess a little bit more is that I would love to create a space where people listening to this and myself can do some citizen science. Mm. So n- notice some stuff and be like, hey. This looks really interesting. Let's go out every day and, I don't know, um, you know, take uh, temperature measurements mm. or something mm. and actually um, put that together and offer it to someone to <laughs> write a paper about. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, but any, yeah. anything that, you know, yeah. you want to leave us with? Oh, look, I'd like to see people uh, be more vocal and passionate about trees in the urban environment and mm. open space and green space, mm-hmm. particularly with their local council. You know, I, I really see that that does make a difference. So a lot of our clients are local governments and they all vary, you know, they're all different mm. to each other. And, and I do see that when there's a very active friends group or a local group in that council, that region, they have an effect on decisions made in council. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and those those effects, particularly when it comes to trees, have long-lasting consequences. So when you're developing or you see that trees might be removed for a car park, for example, and that's, that's uh, sealed over, then that's gone forever. You can't plant trees there anymore, mm. okay? And, and that's not affecting – well, it is affecting us now, but it's going to affect our children in the future, mm. Okay, and the quality of a space like Perth to live in. So I'd, I'd encourage people to, you know, to uh, think about the benefits that really trees provide to them and, mm. um, and when something comes up in a local council, for example, encourage them to go out and write letters and, and speak to them in support of conservation of trees and green space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, sure. that's great. And... Uh, just if you want to give a little bit of a plug for your company uh, or if people want to uh, reach out to you, is, do you have any ways that um, connect with people? Mm. 
Yeah, sure. So uh, if people do a search for our company online, they'll find us. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we've got a website, um, a blog. I'm not so active on there, but should be more active. Um, we're on the social media and stuff, so they can contact us. Um, you know, we're we're working all over Australia and across overseas as well, obviously. So yeah, come and reach out to us. We we have students we work with. We have partnerships at various universities so always looking for people to connect to citizen science mm-hmm. we're involved in some pretty cool projects in that space so yeah i'd love them to to reach out to us for sure awesome that's mm. arbor carbon and i'll uh, give you guys all a link on that um thanks paul for being on the podcast mm. thanks ben thanks very much for having me it's great all right cheers. and thanks everyone for listening uh this is the probiotic life until next time cheers All right, another one in the books. We've got some great interviews coming up. So if you haven't already, click that subscribe button. We're going to be learning about Korean natural farming. I've interviewed a soil scientist from UC Berkeley. And we're interviewing some people about human health and probiotics. So stay tuned to hear more exploratory conversations on the probiotic life. listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life. Show me your microbes and nobody gets hurt.